Hi, you're listening to the Modern Club Management Podcast with me, your host, Ed Chapman. This podcast takes the lived experiences and knowledge of some of the leading figures and thinkers from the world of club management and beyond, all so that they can become your teacher and elevate your performance. Whether you're looking to start a career in club management, are a seasoned club manager at a world-leading club, or work elsewhere within this wonderful industry, there will be powerful messages and key takeaways that can help you in your career or personal life. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Modern Club Management Podcast with me, your host, Ed Chapman. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Greg Patterson. Greg is the president and founder of Tribal Magic, where he is an in-demand speaker around the globe. Prior to this, he was a general manager for an incredible 34 years at the Beach Club in Santa Monica, California. He survived all that, and with a median staff tenure of an equally <laughs> impressive 17 years, which makes and it flourished, flourished, survived and, and flourished. flourished, absolutely, which makes it safe to say that when it comes to the world of club, he knows a thing or two. Greg, welcome to the show, and I'm very excited about where our conversation is going to go today. Wonderful to be here. I look forward to the discussion. So to start us off, Greg, can you give us a little bit of background of why you care and when did you learn to care about this great industry and your own personal history a bit? Well, well, first of all, let me give you a bit of background to let you know who I am. There's no straight line in anybody's career. Uh, I started uh, working at a very young age. I come from a less than affluent family. And so uh, I was mowing lawns, delivering newspapers. Uh, But a great work experience for me, I worked eight years in the the graveyard, uh, digging graves and mowing lawns. And I worked in a mortuary and bombing, helping embalm people. (laughs) They said I had the right personality for it. But it's great because the person in charge of the cemetery was my Russian history teacher in high school. So we had some great conversations. So it was a very reflective opportunity. And I found that when I had time, uh, as you do when you're mowing or digging a grave because you're alone, that you really reflect on yourself in life and all the issues. And uh, by doing so, you enlarge and enrich your life experience. So I did that. Anyway, I, I was uh, very academically oriented. Uh, you know, uh, so I went to college uh, on scholarship. I was very lucky and uh, or fortunate, whatever you want to call it. I majored in history, British imperial history is my specialty because I was a romantic. You know, uh, I come from a small town in Maine and my family never traveled. So in my books, were I traveled through my books and the British Empire had bits and pieces all around the world. So I said, how exciting. So when I went to my undergraduate university, I majored in history, and then uh, I was uh, uh, successful enough to get into an honors program in history. I spent my senior year in London doing research into Anglo-Egyptian diplomatic relations, 1918 to 22. Very exciting, except that I found out that I didn't want to do it for my life. (laughs) I found out I wasn't a research person. I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I knew I wasn't going to be research. I graduated. Fortunately, I had no debt. I returned to London on a Yugoslavian tramp steamer, which was the Sver, Z-V-E-R, is fabulous. Started working as an illegal alien in London. I think it's too long. They can't come after me now. That was back in 1972, so I think I'm safe. But anyway, uh, I enjoyed London, uh, and at that time, it was cheap. It was inexpensive. I thoroughly enjoyed it. But I was getting itchy, and I said, I really haven't explored the States. So I came back to the United States, rebuilt a $50 motorcycle, drove to California, uh, had $35 in my pocket at the time, uh, started working as a security guard at the Hillcrest Country Club. I'd never been exposed to country clubs or golf or anything. I knew nothing about it. And all these Hollywood types coming around, all these movie stars, which is kind of exciting. But uh, one of the the cooks said, well, why don't you uh, become a busboy? Because they'll feed you. And I said, they'll feed me? I said, what a great thing. Because I had no, my family never went to restaurants. I knew nothing about it because we didn't have the money to do that so they said why don't you go over to the bel-air country club which is one of the great clubs in the world and they said they will hire anybody there (laughs) so i went over and uh 
the maitre d' there was Jimmy Newson, who was English and actually been a tail gunner in a uh, uh, Lancaster during the Second World War. So he's a fascinating guy. Said, well, we really don't need anybody. Said, it's to give me a try. So he hired me as a joke. I spoke French and German at the time, and everybody here speaks Spanish. So uh, I went there, and the first day, I, it's like, oh, my God, what is this? Thinking that at least I'm getting fed. But I fell in love with the business, and this is where life is serendipity, right? All of a sudden, it's like, wow, this is exciting. The stories that are out there, all these – again, it's all these Hollywood people, big money people from industry. What a fabulous business. So I stayed in the business. I went from busboy to waiter, waiter to wine steward, not wine sommelier, wine steward, the maitre d' and the general manager there. Uh, uh, Charles Bernold, who was Swedish and had gone to Luzon in uh, Switzerland uh, in the hospitality, said, why don't you go to Cornell? Uh, they have a master's program uh, in hospitality. So I said, well, that's it. Never thinking that it would be a career. Anyway, I went, I applied, I interviewed, I was accepted. Uh, I found that uh, the hospitality business, I mean, the people who were at Cornell were extraordinarily bright and we were all losers. That is, all of us had a different undergraduate experience than what we ended up in. And I'd like to say that, that was a plus because of that we had a very broad range of interests, curiosities and insights. I, I Great. So as a history major, my best friend uh, was an undergraduate uh, at, at Columbia in pre-med. I mean, it was a fascinating group. I said, this business has some really bright people in it. Well, certainly at that level, they do. And I happened to meet my wife there. Uh, and uh, so it worked. She, she was in the School of Industrial Labor Relations at Cornell getting her master's. So, so we met. So that was great. Anyway, I graduated, worked with the Army Club System as a systems analyst. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. They are sending me all over the place. And then the manager of the Bel Air Country Club, called me up and said, Greg, how'd you like to be an assistant manager out here? And it was snowing in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I said, I'm there. Went to California, started working at the Bel Air Country Club. And the love of clubdom was enlarged as a consequence. You see, I like people. I like stories. And there's no place like a country club to get people and stories. And then I was there a couple of years when the member says, well, you know, have you ever thought about running a beach club? And I said, I don't even like the beach. I'm a scuba diver. I jump off boats. Anyway, I said I was itch. I had the itch at that time. I said, I want to become leader of something, manager of something. So uh, I went there, interviewed. I love being interviewed, and uh, Ed, they hired me. I was the youngest manager they had ever hired at that age. Very few managers at the club because they didn't turn over managers. And it was like a 75-year-old club at that time. So it had great stability. So I started working there, fell deeper in love with not only the business, but that club. It was a unique environment, family-friendly, broad-spectrum, uh, very affluent community, obviously, one thing and the next. And while I was there, uh, they asked me to do a, uh, a lunchtime speech at Cal Poly Pomona, the university just around the corner here in the hotel program or the hospitality program. I did that. They knew that I had a master's out of Cornell, so they hired me uh, to teach the club's course. And then uh, that's had a 14-year journey, and I was doing everything from cultural anthropology to uh, uh, you know, business planning and the whole thing. I loved it. And I met somebody there through CMAA. Joe Perdue, who was building the program, said, how would you like to become a speaker in our new series called the Business Management Institute? I said, great. Started in that, and uh, I still do that. I, I teach two classes of business management, and that's 30 years I've been doing that, so that's kind of fun. And then uh, somebody heard me. They suggested I do some speaking, and I was hired as a speaker, which obviously has expanded to sort of a global speaking uh, business that I have. Um, uh, I, I turned 65, and I said, it's time to retire. I remember the board said, Greg, you still got the buzz. Why would you retire? And I said, because I've got a lot fewer years in front of me than already lived. And I'm in the third stage of my life. The first stage is learning. The second is doing. And the third is reflecting on the journey and enlarging the reaching experience. So uh, I retired. I, I became a member of the Beach Club. I didn't have to buy a membership, right? They gave me that as $100,000. Anyway, it's, it's quite expensive. But uh, I said, I insist on, pay I insist on paying dues because I want everybody to know that I value it so much I pay dues. So I'm down there all the time, and I created my business, Tribal Magic, 
And people say, well, where'd that name come from? I said, what we are is tribal creatures. And in the club business, it's all about creating relationships and community. And magic is making the moment of a member's arrival or a staff person's arrival special. So anyway, that's my business and uh, business is good. So I'm all over the place, preaching and teaching, I call it. And uh, I do a lot of writing as well, as you well know. Ed. So anyway, that's basically my journey. And it's not a straight line. So if anybody thinks their career is a straight line, you is mistaken. <laughs> That's certainly yeah, a wide ranging zigzag of a career. Zigzag. And it, it sounds like your love of stories and creating moments in people really kind of came from not having the opportunity to travel and do things in your youth, but from reading yeah. and getting them from stories. Right. Well, your inspiration comes from many sources, what it comes down to. And I've always found uh, it's important to become an interesting person. I always say what you must do is boost your IQ, your interesting quotient. you got to read more, travel more, talk to more interesting people, write more. If you do those things, all of a sudden you, people want to be around you. They feel good when they're near you. It's like, God. And, and obviously we talk about how do you keep staff happy? The key thing is, are you happy? Are you energized? Are you buzzed? Do you like the business? Do you like people? And people can smell that. And one of the difficulties I've found in the new generation of managers, I come from, if you will, the dark ages of clubdom, where we all came from different backgrounds. Now they have an undergraduate business degree, and then they all want to get an MBA, a master's of business. And they forget that ours is a people business. Ours is an experience experience business and that's what i specialize in i specialize in people and experiences tribal magic <laughs> do you think then there's something that gets missed a little bit on the way of people starting their careers with such a fixed goal of where they want to get to and they go in a straight line to get that they miss all these experiences absolutely i agree 100 percent. as a matter of fact uh, there's a book that's out it's called range which is very interesting it talks about that very thing uh there are some athletes like a Tiger Woods who at two years age is in the golf career. And then you have uh, others, uh, you know, who will play all sorts of sports when they're young. And then in the mid teens, they start specializing. And that's true with us as individuals. I am always hesitant when I hear somebody in high school saying, uh, you know, oh, I want to become X. I said, dude, you don't have a clue. You've narrowed your life. And I think the greatest uh, a gift that I was given was curiosity. And I've always curious and I was never happy doing anything long-term. I knew I wasn't office related. I tried that for once in London and it, it it's complete failure, right? And all of a sudden I found out I needed something, but you don't know where. And I'd never been exposed to hospitality. You know, I had no money. I didn't go to restaurants or clubs or anything. But once I was exposed to it on the backside, the delivery side, I found out, God, this is interesting. What you have to do is find something that is aligned with you and your personality. And that's tough, Ed, because it, it takes a lot of uncertainty. But I like to say during that journey, I've got a, a quote that's saying, you know, the foundation of success is a catalog of failures, right? You got to screw up a lot before you know what is right. What is it? Um, uh, a great English uh, poet, William Blake, said, um, "the the the road to the palace of the road of uh, the road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. Only when you know what is too much do you know what is enough." That's a great quote. So anyway, I was all over the place and I tell people to do that. The problem is people are scared. They don't have the confidence to say, look, who cares? And I come from a poor family and I knew I could stay alive, you know, and I was a mechanic. So I fixed my motorcycle and that, so I knew I could do it. I had the opportunity. But if you say at the beach club, you know, you grow up and at 16, you have your BMW, you know, and you go to the great universities. You can't afford to do what I did, which was you have no money, but you know you can take care of yourself and stay alive. And that's what I think may be a more interesting person. But very few people, very few people are willing to do that now. They want to graduate from college and know what they're going to do. I tell them, climb on a Yugoslavian tramp steamer. <laughs> You'll see life differently than you do now got to take the biggest risk in life is not taking any risks. exactly that's 
That's a very wise thing. You know, risk and uncertainty. I call it the great adventure. You know, and life is an adventure. And it's about risk and uncertainty, but it enlarges and enriches your life. So there are no straight lines in your career that weren't in mine. And I'm a happier man because of it. I want to believe that. So you mentioned about being a systems analyst for the U.S. Army club systems. How has that influenced Mm. your approach to decision making? Well, first of all, I'm very analytical. That's easy to do. But I found out in the Army, what I was doing was writing all these operations manuals. And you know what I discovered? that operations manuals are easy. Getting people to do it is tough. And I think the thing I learned out of the army is you can write all day. And if nobody wants to do what you've written, it does you no good. So the key thing is people in any system that you develop, right? And so I remember writing these big stacks of books and I was so proud, right? And nobody read them. (laughs) And so I discovered at that point, you have to deliver systems and understanding in a different way because you got to make ideas stick. And I know what most people, particularly in the in the U.S. Army, most of the people there are not they don't have master's degrees from an Ivy League university. As a consequence, you have to deliver the message in such a way that it sticks. And that's really what I learned out of that whole experience. I said, dude, you know, I write well. So, yes, I can write all this stuff. Ain't doing you no good. So what it taught me was what I shouldn't do. <laughs> it was a failure. In my judgment, is a failure. They saluted me and clapped their hands at all these three-ring binder manuals I made. Didn't do anybody any good. So uh, it, that taught me a very great lesson. Don't piss your money away on something that doesn't stick. So anyway. No, that's very, very powerful, very true. And probably brings us on to our main topic today. Uh, they've got a lot of staff in the world who are unhappy, stressed in many industries. And then let's assume that as a club, we've already met the qualifying criteria in terms of pay and benefits, which is critical, but it's not enough. That's ground zero. Bennies that you deliver, the, the, the salary, that sort of thing, have to equal the norm. It doesn't make anybody happy. If you don't equal it, they're unhappy. So ground zero is simply the right pay and benefits. exactly what you're saying. There's five big areas, I think, based on your writing on this topic that I've pulled out. And the first one touches on something you've mentioned earlier. You need a happy leader. You you need, yeah, that leadership from the front, it all filters down enthusiasm is more effective than efficiency. And one thing they don't teach you in say graduate school is how to be a happy person. You know, I call it, what's your pie, right? You know, you want to enlarge and enrich your pie continuously. But you know, if you aren't happy, you can't generate enthusiasm for others. By way of example, I officiated a wedding yesterday and I love weddings and I love the two people I was marrying or officiating at. And I brought that joy to that experience. So you've got 100 people in the audience. You've got those people. And it's infectious, right? You know, happiness is infectious. People want to be around happy people. So if you want a happy staff, every time they encounter you, you're generating the buzz. You're delivering the energy. Huge issue, Ed. Huge issue. And it's really discussed. <laughs> they talk about all these systems to make staff happy but the most critical thing are you walking around and are you a living breathing example of happiness big deal it is and i think the word you've picked out there is key infectious when we're around infectious. happy people we we can't we watch we watch comedy live everyone laughs you yeah. can't help but laugh it's a whole different yeah. experience exactly but within that You know, I often ask people, how many of you want to work for a miserable son of a bitch? And nobody will raise their hand, right? So the opposite must be true. So then if you've got unhappy staff, let's park the legal framework, because that's going to be different in different countries. But you've got an unhappy member of staff who you can see are bringing other people down. What's the process you'd go through with them as the kind of each stage along the way to try and either pull them up to the right level or... Look at moving them on. Well, there there are two things. First of all, you have to accept that many unhappy people are unhappy in their private life. 
So I have my principles of happiness, whether it be good health, passions, time to pursue them, dreams and hope, all those things. That's the first thing you look at. You know, is there something in their personal life that they're bringing to work? Secondly, is there something in the job experience that doesn't work? So then the first thing I look at is alignment. Are they the right personality for that job? You may have somebody in maintenance who really wants to be a security guard or security guard who really wants to be a bartender. You have to make sure they're in the right position within the club. So in their personal life, and, and, and you discover some of those things through your personal connection with them. So the first thing you do is you bring them in, and I call it alone time with Papa, right? Come on in. Let's talk. Let's have a discussion, right? So you talk about their personal life. Oh, are you have, do you have enough time for your kids? Do you have enough time for – what do you love doing? Do you have enough time for it? But then you look at the job. It's like you don't seem to be excited. I mean, is it because you don't like people? You don't like community? You don't like clubs? I mean, it may be they're in the wrong business, right? So you shouldn't hire those people to begin with. And one of the things is you got to know if they're in the right, it's alignment, aligning them with the right business. So then you got to find out what is it about the job. They don't like the supervisor, which might be legitimate. So I have a whole supervisor certification program. Great supervisors are like sergeants in the military. They're in the trenches with the people and they're making sure that it happens. So then you're trying to correct this. You're trying to correct the environment that might be wrong. You're trying to correct their mindset, which might be wrong. You're trying to correct their, 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 their skill set, which might be wrong. So you're always working on that. If you hire somebody, and again, I've got a whole process that you go through hiring, boot camp, that sort of thing. You want to keep those people. Losing staff is the worst thing you can do. I mean, it disrupts the team. If you have a bad apple, though, the ultimate experience is releasing them, right? It is the best thing for them and the best thing for the club. Because if somebody's miserable and happy, Ed, you know, and it might be because of the job, their life, they're going to corrupt the experience that others have around them. Remember what we said? Happiness is infectious. So, too, is misery, People who are miserable infect others with that misery. So the ultimate end is that you've got to get rid of those people. And every country has a different way of doing it, a different standard. But you've got to document the journey. You're trying, if you hire a person, your job is to make them a success. So you can't give up too quickly on people. So how do you, uh, how do you pursue that journey? It's exciting stuff, but it's going to happen. And uh, as a matter of fact, to the beach club, because I'm close to the manager there and uh, talking about somebody that they've just released, uh, who was a long term employee, but attitude went downhill. It was a must do situation. Uh, and it doesn't make anybody feel good. Firing somebody is the worst experience a manager can experience. It's awful. Anybody who thinks firing is fun, dude, do it sometime. So you try to save them. That's what it comes down to. But sometimes you can't. And the end result is, look, let us be friends. It's time for you to go. Right. So good question. Point you've hit on there as well. It's that it's what's kind and best for them, potentially moving them on to a job they're going to enjoy more if they're not right. happy in this one or they're not suited to it. Because one of the things that you do as a good leader is you mentor your people. Coaching them says you better do this right. But mentoring is to ask questions that guide them to a solution and to give insight and advice. So your job, I, I don't have children. So all of my employees, 150 of them I had, they were essentially my children. My job was to counsel them. A parent doesn't give up on a child because they screw up and do something wrong. They counsel them. They give them advice and insight. They mentor them so they become better. So that's one of the joys. And sometimes you fail. But most of the time you succeed if you have the right mindset. Yeah, a pathway of looking at it and having that process of getting to know them, treating them like a person. Sometimes a field managers can treat them like a staff member as a, purely as a number. Whereas, as you said earlier, getting to know what's their hobbies, what's their interests. Do they have time for them? The, the, the days when you can, I say you do, are gone. People want to be a participant in the decisions. They want their life to be valuable to you. So uh, my father, uh, obviously, uh, he's passed. But uh, in his uh, day, uh, when he was working, say, in the 50s and 60s, it's like you say I do. I don't make any comment. 
right? That's not the way anymore. You know, you get a kid that's 23 years old and you say, do this. And they say, why? You've got to be ready to explain and to understand. Very, the world has changed. Managers have an awe. If <laughs> I, I know in the military, when I was dealing with that, uh, I wasn't I wasn't in the army. I worked for the army, but uh, it was command and control. I say you do, and nobody said, "Well, general, I don't know if that's right." In the work environment now, you've got to do that. It's a different world. Okay, so Greg, that's some really good points you make there on the importance of getting our staff in the right frame of mind and, and being a happy leader. And within that, you've talked about getting to know your staff, which brings me on to kind of our next area I want to look at, which I would call inclusivity. So there's a couple of things you've talked about or read, written about within that. Names, knowing everybody's names and make, getting every staff member to know everybody else's names. I think that's really powerful because it, it humanizes us more and makes us feel huge, huge, really huge, gives huge. that family feeling to the environment that you're coming to and so much easier for staff members to build relationships with each other as well if the barrier of not knowing names isn't there. Well, the most powerful tool you have that costs you nothing, whether it be with member staff, purveyors, whatever it might be, is knowing names, right? You, to be able, It's like gold. When you call someone, if I say, Ed, how's it going, big guy? How you feeling today? I mean, it just makes you feel important instead of, hey, you, great to see you. How are you today? knowing the name and i had a whole process where we got to know i had classes in it we had tests in it uh we had uh games in it knowing staff names and knowing member names was fundamental to your success right so it's a huge thing and it's the least expensive thing that you can do in this world and maybe the most powerful the the the, the golden tool that you have is knowing names can you give an example of one of those games that you would use to help learn names? Absolutely. And, and this is one of the fun things. Understand, I like people is what it comes down to. So any opportunity. So each month we had an all staff meeting. I'd have a core, uh, a, a skeleton crew that would keep the place running. It'd be a Thursday afternoon, two to four. I mean, it would be long. And um, we always had classes. Uh, before that and you get paid for attending and it's about learning names photographs of staff photographs of members you remember it but when we started our monthly all staff meeting i'll tell you how we did it uh everybody's there and first of all i mix them up because everybody sits with their own team so i said okay everybody move they know the routine i don't know why they don't do it but the minute i say it they move then everybody stands up starting with me because i'm at the front of the room i said greg patterson general manager 34 years right and everybody stands up so people are writing down if we have a new employee i said ladies and gentlemen we have a newbie today mr ed right who are you and he stands up and everybody cheers and one thing but people are writing it down because if they don't remember i have my notepad here everybody had one of these notepads now in the in the thing uh, I don't have it on this because I don't have this new, but we'd put the names in the people you don't know. So then we'd have the staff name game. Every time when people came in, they had to write their name on a piece of paper, throw it in a raffle box. I would reach in and pull out a name. I might pull out Ed. I said, Ed, come to the front because I know people cheat if they sit there. So you get $2 for every employee's name you can name. And you got to start with me. So you go around the room. If you name everybody in the room, we double. I've had dishwashers walk away with 400 US dollars because they remembered everybody. Saying, and here you are. You're a busboy. Don't even speak English. And everybody's cheering for you. How many times did that happen to you? Very rarely, right? So that's the first thing. Then we have member names. The member name games is worth more because they don't run into them in the same way. But we have a slide. The slide will go up. And I'll have, again, pull a name out of the hat and I say, Ed, come up again. What was the member? And if you can't remember the name or with the staff name game, you know, everybody knows you're there. Ah, 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 and that people go five, four, three, two. And the minute they start counting, you'll never remember anything. So it's last. Then the next person comes up. And so, again, we double it if you get everybody going to the end. So people can walk out of there with money. I remember my finance committee says, my God, Greg, you're spending $10,000 a year on this and, and various other things I do at the monthly all staff meeting. That's one of the things. Next thing we do monthly all staff meeting uh, is we have the, the anniversary 
uh, thing. So everybody whose anniversary is that month, where they've been there a week, a month, 10 years, or 50 years, comes up in reverse order. The youngest comes up first, and we give them a dollar if they've been there a year. If you've been there 50 years, like Caesar in our grill, he gets $50 on his anniversary date. You know, the whole idea is, and so you're repeating names all the time. You see what's happening? You're repeating names. And then we do the birthday uh, a celebration. So when people have a birthday, they come up. I have my controller there with 45 envelopes, starting with $5 going to 50. And they check, choose one. They stand up there and then they open them up. I call their name when they come up. When they're standing there, I call their name, open up your envelope and tell me how much you got. And obviously they love it when a busboy makes $50 and a supervisor makes $5. They love it, right? Stick it to the man, right? And then we have everybody stand up and sing them happy birthday. Happy birthday to you, that sort of thing. And they sit down. So you see your name has been repeated multiple times that day. So all of a sudden you start to think that. And one of the requirements that we have is called GEG, greet, engage, goodbye. So whenever you meet anybody, you might say, Ed, how's it going, big guy? Good to see you, or whatever it might be. And we have this fist bump and that sort of thing. So people are using names all the time. We have a culture of name calling, <laughs> not bad names, name calling. The, the name calling culture, I mean, it's, it's powerful. And so, yeah, uh, you start to learn names almost unconsciously. And I would love, I love to go through, I also had dollar bills in my pocket. I love to do, you know, pop-up quizzes. Right. So I'll walk in there and uh, say you're a new busboy. And I say, what's that member's name right over there? And they say, God, I don't know. I said, why didn't you ask? Why didn't you write the name down in your book? And so we go over and repeat it. And if they get it right, I give them a dollar bill. It's amazing how that appreciation and reward reaffirms and lets it settle in. So you don't have tests in it, but it's sort of improvisational, fun examinations. Hugely, hugely powerful. It works all the time. That's all I can say. But, you know, what's interesting, I bet I've not been manager for seven years, right? And the, the, the tragedy is this culture you create. We're on the third manager since I left. I was there 34 years and we've had three since I left, right? But you lose that culture. And, you know, it, 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 people come up to me and they sing this song, the love is gone. Well, one part of love is knowing people's names and giving them that greeting and that engagement and that goodbye. Hugely powerful, Ed. You want to make happy staff? first thing you know everybody's name mm, there's a few different threads i want to pull out there the first one is that but with your finance team questioning that you know ten thousand dollars a year well actually the return on investment of your staff loving coming to work and knowing all the members names and how that makes them right. feel right. Well, it's invaluable but also they want to see the numbers right they're metrics oriented oh show me the numbers turnover goes down that's the first thing Turnover is the most expensive thing you can do as a manager. So you reduce turnover. Staff are happy. Members are happy. Now, that's an intangible, but members come down more if they are encountering happy staff on a regular basis. So you don't have as much turnover. Now, the third thing here in California, I don't know the way it is in the UK, but we have this thing called worker comp. When you're injured, uh, you, know, you have insurance and you pay for it. And your insurance premium is based on your experience mod. How many are they? When I came to the Beach Club, it was like 230% experience mod. That is 100% is not. When I left, 73%. I mean, we're saving a fortune every year, $50,000, $60,000. So those are metrics I can show. What's interesting, since I left, it's back up to 200 and something now. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. So I was saving by giving $10,000, I was saving $60,000 easy to justify to a finance committee that it's a good investment. Lower turnover, happier staff, better member relations, lower worker comp. Boom. They want metrics. I'll give you metrics. Good point. Having that to back it up, because I think for a lot of managers, you can feel that these kind of happy, not really fluffy, but they're really, really important. The social KPIs, as you'd call them, are so crucial. Absolutely. And I think it can be hard to find the metrics that yeah. validate them to, right. you know, in a private club, the finance um, committee, or in a commercial club to the owners. That There are powerful ways of doing it that you've mentioned. Well, what's interesting is, uh, certainly I was in private clubs and they were member owned. So there's a different thing. But if you're on the finance committee or board, you are hearing things from your members continually, right? 
It's like you're out having a cocktail and they say, God, this is a great place. The staff are always happy. I remember when I left, the one thing that the manager, the, 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 the nominate committee, the past president's committee that chose the next manager said, the one thing is you better keep staff happy here. It's a huge part of the beach club experience. And anyway, there've been issues in one thing there. So I want to go into that, but it's very interesting that they themselves said, this is one of the keys to our success. And people right now will say, and you ask most people, when they think of their club, they think of staff. They will see the staff more than they'll see their member friends, right? So that, it, and the word gets out. <laughs> Believe me, people talk and people listen. Now, in a commercial hotel environment, I don't know anything about that. I guess online, your, 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 your ratings uh, with those things, one thing. In a closed society that knows each other, a tribe, they're always talking to each other. So uh, believe me, uh, the board wants the members to be happy. If the members are happy, they'll tell the board. And whatever you're doing, they, they, they celebrate and salute you. <laughs> <laughs> Success is, is the key. Yeah, th those games you've mentioned about playing to learn the names, because that also has secondary functions of building that, you know, that family feeling of, of those bond team bonding. Team bonding, relationships are the key to our business. You want happy staff, they like the people they're working with. As a matter of fact, one of the things that that I, I often said about worker comp is if staff low and like staff, they may get injured, they'll come right back. But if they don't like staff, they don't like the club, they won't. And obviously that has been proven. My insurance people were trying to get other clubs to do what I'd done, but it takes a certain personality, somebody who truly loves doing it to do it well you can say oh i have a monthly all staff meeting has no impact dude it's because you're boring as a rock <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think we've all probably been in at least one monthly staff meeting all hands on deck where you're right. trying hard not to yawn because it's not engaging when it as Put it presents right to sleep yeah and it presents such right. an amazing opportunity to have your whole team together yeah. Well, see, one of the tactics of being a speaker or whatever is engagement with the audience, right? So your staff is your audience. How do you engage them in the journey and the process? You don't lecture to them. It puts put me to sleep in graduate school. I don't want to do that. You want an interactive experience. So they don't know what's coming. It may be them that you get. Believe me, they don't go to sleep in my meetings. <laughs> I can assure you. That I can assure you. Moving on to another topic within this this area of keeping Huge. You know, generating that big happy with the staff Huge. individual growth and personal growth for staff well first of all you got to know what your staff wants and what their talents are you know and knowing what people want and whether they're capable of doing is one thing but you have to build into your day a growth learning experience that's first of all so the up brief is important i have my five minute education uh we have raffle boxes i believe that people learn uh in a non-linear fashion so i love raffle boxes you pull out it's like okay what direction should the lines on the tablecloth on a table uh, uh, go in the dining room i mean if you're dealing with the dining room staff or how high how much oil should be in a machine if you're on the greenskeeping team or whatever because that's continuous education continuous incremental education so you're always doing that then at the end of each day and then during the day you do the walk and talk so that's part of the education at the end of the day you do the daily debrief hugely powerful the upbrief and the debrief are the two most powerful educational tools that you have done every day and you come in and say the first one is what's your question of the day everybody must have without a question you're never going to learn all knowledge is question driven. Question of the day, what's your story of the day? And then WWEBI, what went well, even better if. So you have this dialogue and you're writing down the things, like I always have my notepads with me, right? Pieces of paper, which go into the raffle box. You're recording those because if those questions come up, if those experiences come up, other people can learn from them. So that becomes part of your morning routine. So your evening morning. Then I have this thing called BCU, Beach Club University. Obviously, it's free. Anybody can come, right? And you get paid for being there, which is kind of a cool thing to do. So an hour of education each week. And I usually talk about non-club-specific things. I might talk about personal finance. I might talk about, uh, you know, how to deal with divas, you know, or how to lead, how to follow. You know, it, topics that are universal and not, oh, how do you set a table or whatever it might be. That's not the part. So you've got that. Then you've got a... Um, 
an executive ed program, I call it. I have this management development program, which is like a two years long uh, that you have that you can go through. I bring in speakers from outside that were part of that BCU thing. Then you have uh, different categories that you can use to grow. Uh, the first thing, uh, the first category is uh, certified boot camp instructor. Right. So for the five days of boot camp, that is with new employee, you must be instructed by a certified instructor. So the person that does the job, busboy, waiter, golf course, uh, you know, maintenance person, whatever it might be. So they're with them on a daily basis. So you wear the badge, you get more money. Then the next thing is certified eye opener. Right. And the motto is point your finger and I'll tell you the story, which is a very difficult thing as well. It's like we have paintings there. Who did the painting when it was purchased? Uh, you know, how many members are there? There are about 165 questions that we go through. So you do it. You get another badge and you get more money. So all of a sudden you get these educational opportunities. Then I do um, uh, a lot of networking, I call it. There's internal and external networking. Internal, uh, you, you take, uh, the, say, the dining room team to the golf course, you know, because they've never been out there. And so you're doing internal networking. Then I love to do external networking where we take a team, say the maintenance team, and we'll go over to the Los Angeles Country Club or the Bel Air Country Club or the Wilshire Country Club. And they will talk to the maintenance guys. They're mostly Hispanic, so they're talking Spanish, and they feel good. They're part of it, and so they're growing. Although they haven't left, they are growing within the job. So, yeah, they're very specific things that you can do. And, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, you know, people say, oh, I don't have enough time. I said, dude, you don't. You, you, if you don't do it, you're in trouble. You'll, you'll be looking for a new job. And the average length of time managers last here in the States is less than three years, you know, they get zonked, right? And you ask yourself, why? Well, they don't keep the staff happy. They don't keep the members happy. And they don't run the business. So <laughs> big three. There you have it. So I love this. The whole Now, none of this stuff, when I was coming through the ranks, this was not stuff that they gave me at all. But you learn by bad examples as much as by good examples. So I said, well, okay, if I'm a new employee, I'd like to get to know the general manager. Can you imagine that? So on the first day that you're at the club, you can't work an hour until you've gone through the general manager's orientation. And all of a sudden, I know you. And so when you walk by me, I said, Ed, how's it going? Well, man, you've been here two days. What do you think of the club? You know what that makes you feel like? Makes you feel good, right? So I've got a whole routine, a whole program that I go through. It's very exciting, Ed. It's, it's a, anyway, I, I find it's real dynamic. Anyway, but education is a huge part of people want to keep growing and I don't care what position you're in. They want to grow. There is and that that personal growth that they feel from that. Well, that to them makes them feel so valued at the club because they're learning and developing, not just for their better to be a better worker and be better in their job, but you're making them better people as well, which then feeds into that whole feeling like a, a family at the club. Well, first of all, competence makes anybody feel good, doesn't it? I mean, if, if you do the job well, you can change the oil in the mowing machines and you do it well. It makes you feel good. I have a, a, one of my sexy sayings is meaningful work is life, man's salvation, right? Man, woman, whatever it might be. The idea is if you're doing something that's meaningful, that's needed, that's important, that's complex, that satisfies something deep in you, makes you feel good. Right. So that's why this alignment thing is important. You want to find out if the work you're doing is meaningful. But one of the things I do as well is I dramatize how your job is meaningful. And I've written about it. Uh, one of the articles I wrote uh, called uh, Seeing Wonderful. You know, whoever you're with, whatever you're doing, wherever you're at, finding the wonderful in where you are is one of life's great gifts. Right. So that is our job. You want to keep staff happy? Let them see wonderful. Give them the eyes to see. Very big deal. I love there's one quote of there's, I think it's a president walking through the NASA buildings and he asks a cleaner what he does and he says, oh, I put people on the moon. Because his view is if NASA's not yeah. clean and the astronauts get a cold, they're not going to the moon. Well, I, I think one of the examples is, uh, again, the average length of time employed stayed with me, my core team. I had about 65 core employees, about 150 in the summertime, obviously the business expands. But it was about 17 years. And I had a dishwasher. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, didn't even speak English. Wonderful guy. Right. And the fact is, he stayed because 
he was getting something from the job he couldn't get anyplace else. He got dignity, right? He felt good about himself. Mm. He got satisfied. The general manager knows my name. How many times have you worked in a big hotel and the general manager doesn't have a clue who you are? You know, it doesn't make you feel good, right? You know, I like, I'm a small business guy. I like small businesses because I get to know everybody. And uh, that's the joy that I get out of work. You know, so you know, bringing that to the team is an important part of it. So moving on to kind of last little bit we've already touched on is that creating that team bonding of the staff. What would be the one or two mm-hmm. most impactful things that you have found when you've gone for looking at team bonding, what's been the easy ones, the kind of daily things, and then the a bigger scale one less often? There are two types of bonding you're dealing with. You're dealing with team within the club, say your your uh, golf team, right? And then you have the club team as a whole. The big thing, again, to be really simple, you want to create team within your department. That's what it'd be, within your department. The up brief and the debrief each day are the key. They're the key because everybody's talking. Everybody's getting to know each other. That is the key. When it comes to the team as a whole, uh, one to bring them together, the monthly all staff is the key. That's one thing. The next thing is to have common experiences that you do. We love to do bingo. Uh, we love to do whether bocce now because we have bocce courses, whatever it might be that you then mix up the teams. We like to go bowling. I don't know if you like bowling, but you know, it's, I love bowling. So you take them to the bowling course, you split up the team so that nobody works with, is on the team of somebody from their department because you're trying to create that different thing. So you mess, mix them up. And all of a sudden they find out that people are really nice that might be there. When I came to the beach club all those many years ago, back in 1982, right? The fact of the matter is the kitchen hated the dining room staff the dining room staff hated the grill the grill hated the beach staff you know on and on and on i knew that one of my jobs was create a sense of team that was that was like warring uh warring factions right it's like the different valleys fighting with each other and one of the great victories i had is i i i brought i don't know if you call it love but certainly i brought the team together as individual team within the larger team and then the larger team i think that's my gift that I was able to do that. Well, Greg, we're pushing up on what I know is a time limit for you. What's the one best people, one of the best pieces of advice that you've received in your career? Obviously you give out a lot from your great knowledge you've had in your career, but what's one of the best ones that you've had? Without any question, doing demands debrief. And whatever you do in life, whether it's just driving to work, you know, taking a walk as I'm going to do over to my motorcycle shop. It is an experience from which you can draw great lessons and insights. So whatever your life is, doesn't matter what you're doing, busboy, waiter, president of the United States, every day gives you experiences that give you great insight into the larger thematic issues of life if you learn to see correctly. And the key to seeing is debriefing the experience that you've had. Like after I finish with you, you know, while I'm walking, I'll be debriefing and I'll have my notepad with me. Always carry a notepad and say, well, okay, what should we remember doing in the future? There are about a thousand things I'd like to talk about that we didn't have a chance to talk about, right? What might those be? Uh, You know, what should we do about the technology? You know, how do we handle this? What about the hearing? I mean, we've had an experience reflect on it. I had uh, at the Beach Club 34 years as general manager, and I've been in the business of clubs since 1974. And the fact is, I'm an old geeky guy. And I've taken that first bit of advice doing now I it it wasn't said to me that way, but I made it that way, because it's easy to remember doing I've had a life I've done. I've crested 70 years old. I'm an old man. I've got lots of life that I've lived debrief that life experience and draw the great larger principles and practices. Like you say, uh, one of the keys to your success as a general manager is keeping your staff happy. That's a principle. The practices, how do you do it? Up brief, debrief, monthly all staff meeting, uh, you know, uh, common events, upside surprises. You know, I mean, I've got, if obviously you've read my article, there are dozens, I think there are like 40 things that you should do. And if I were to evaluate you, 
doing demands debrief. None of that stuff was given to me. I didn't read it in a book. They didn't give it to me in a class. You know, it's like I look and experience, think about it, and then I draw something from it. So that that that's the best bit of advice I've ever had. The other bit of advice, and kids often ask me that. I say, Greg, what's the key to my success? And I say, curiosity. Ask questions. You know, all knowledge is question-driven. And I'll say curiosity is nature's original school of education. So the professional said doing demands debrief, but if you're talking about life, curiosity is the key to a successful and happy life. So those two things, that's what I would say. Wonderful. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. Greg, thank you for your time and this fascinating conversation we've had today. Ed, I've enjoyed it beyond your knowing. Thank you. Look forward to speaking to you in the future. Hopefully sometime when over there in the UK, you know, where it's it's cold and gooey and, and foggy and rainy. I look forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks so much, Greg, and have a great day. Have a good one, Ed. Thank you for joining me on this journey as we dive into the world of club management. I hope you enjoy listening to these conversations as much as I enjoy having them. If you do enjoy and get value from them, I have two small requests. Simply subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast listening app and leave a review and share it directly with someone whom you think would benefit from listening. If you're interested in being a guest on this show yourself, then you can reach out to me using the details in the show notes or email me modernclubmanagement at pm.me. In the show notes, you will also find a link to my bi-weekly newsletter that complements these conversations where you can sign up to receive these directly into your inbox so that you never miss out. Thanks for tuning in and have an amazing day. This episode is brought to you by Sweda. Sweda is the social learning platform that delivers high quality blended learning with human connection. Sweda is on a mission to revolutionize the digital learning space through restoring the critical element of human engagement that has gotten lost in online learning. The technology provides everything organizations or individuals need on one single platform to achieve meaningful long-term learning success. Using these skills helped me attain a job offer as the director of golf at Golf Digest, top 100 in the world ranked course after I completed their influence and communication courses. But don't just take my word and the 97% five-star reviews it has had on Trustpilot for it. Try it yourself. All you have to do is email david at suada.com. That's S-U-A-D-A.com. And quote, the Modern Club Management Podcast to claim your free enrollment onto the Reciprocity course to start your journey to become a more influential and persuasive communicator.